You are listening to the Antler and Featherco Podcast. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another Antler and Featherco Podcast, the podcast for new and adult onset hunters. As you guys know, this is a podcast where me, Vince, uh, an inexperienced newer hunter, brings people onto the show that know a thing or two about hunting. And as I learn things from them, I just want to pass them right along to you guys. So guys, we've had a handful of shows about arrows recently, but I could not be more excited about our show today. You've heard a lot of talk referencing um, Dr. Ashby, the Ashby reports. Uh, You've heard of the different ways Dr. Ashby has influenced the hunting community. And today we get to talk to the man himself, Dr. Ed Ashby. Whether you shoot heavy arrows or not, there's a lot to be learned from the work that Dr. Ashby has done over the years. In our last show with Rob and Rob from the Ashby Bowhunting Foundation, we talked about arrow lethality, but we didn't really get too far into the actual 12 arrow penetration factors. So today we're going to focus on that so we can have a better understanding of each one of those factors and how they impact our arrow lethality. Before we get too carried away with the show, I want to take a second to remind you guys, check out Buzzard Roost Saddles. They're the most comfortable, most adjustable saddles on the market. I love mine. I don't sell you guys crap that I don't use and don't believe in. And that's really all you need to know. They're awesome. Use code AAFP10 to get yourself 10% off your very own saddle. All right, guys, let's get the show rolling. Joining us today alongside Dr. Ashby is Rob Hummel and Alex Buchan from the Ashby Bowhunting Foundation. So how are you guys doing today? Great to finally talk to you guys and link up. It's always good when it's hot in season. Oh, yeah. yeah. good. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know uh, you had mentioned possibly having to leave early because you had a target buck possibly coming around. Yeah, I did not see him yesterday, so. Oh, that's that's the worst part about him. It's whenever you're not there, they show up. I know. I had my buddy last week. He was like, I am not. We had a cold front come in and it was a uh, Friday, Saturday. And he's like, I'm not hunting Friday. I'm going to get him on Saturday. Sure enough, he shows up right in front of his stand Friday like 6 p.m. He goes out Saturday, nowhere to be found. Hasn't seen him since. That's always how it works. <laughs> Man. <laughs> well, hey, uh, Dr. Ashby, first and foremost, I want to thank you for all the work you've done over the years. Um, your contributions to the bow hunting community are many. Um, and I know I'm very thankful for everything you've done. Today, I kind of just want to cover the 12 factors one by one so that everyone can uh, have a better understanding of what each factor means. Um, and how to apply them to our own arrow builds. Um, Basically, I have the 12 factors written down here, and I'm just going to kind of turn it loose to you to explain those 12 factors. Um, Before we get into that, Alex, I wanted to ask you, you're kind of new on the team from my understanding. So what are you doing with the foundation? And kind of, yeah, what's your role there? Um, I'm an ambassador, but I call myself a super ambassador (laughs) because I do quite a bit of work for them in the background, um, things that the directors kind of just pass off to me because they're busy. They don't have, I mean, they're all work and they do this all in their, you know, spare time. Um, so I recently started running the ABF Instagram page to get more on there to, you know, more interaction. And I really, everything I do is just to spread the word. Um, I call it the Ashby gospel. (laughs) There you go. Um, so 
pretty much always just working in the back background, trying to educate as many people as I can with the reports and the factors and, you know, just pique people's interest to get them to start looking into it. Yeah. In today's day and age, it's almost, you know, it's essential to have a social media presence. Even I'm not the biggest social media person. I don't like it. I don't like what it's done to our culture in a lot of ways, but it's like, I'm also trying to run this thing here and it's absolutely essential. So it's like you, you have to, so have fun with it. It's, it, it can be, it can have its days, but it's, it, it is a fun thing to do. And, you know, you get to be creative and with you guys, you're spreading such an important message. It, it really is an important thing uh, for bow hunting. So thanks for stepping up and doing that and good luck with all that. I'm sure it's going to be great. Um, so I'm going to say a quick prayer. And then we'll hop into the 12 factors if you guys are all good with that. Sounds good. All right. So normally, guys, I would uh, do a prayer. But at, at church today, I had uh, one of the songs had something in it that I really wanted to to read uh, read out. I really liked it. So, um, so, oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place, you suffered blood and died. You rose the grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. Again, you rose and the grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. And Lord Jesus, I I can't even begin to humanly express um, just the thanks. Uh, we don't, we, there's absolutely no way we deserve um, what you did for us. There's no way I should have the freedom to pray to you right now. There's, there's what selfless, completely selfless. And I'm just so thankful and grateful. I, I hope to, um, glorify you with this podcast first and foremost. Um, and, and everything that comes beyond or behind that is just, you know, extra. Um, so I'm thankful for Dr. Ashby. I'm thankful for Rob and Alex. Um, it's awesome that they would come on here and talk talk to me today and just kind of, it's just wonderful that we get to enjoy this thing that we all love so much and that they're so willing to share everything that they know. And we ask that you be over this conversation that you would, um, help it reach as many people as, as you can. And I'm just so thankful. And we ask all this in Jesus great name. Amen. All right. So you guys, just to kind of catch up, Rob was on the podcast a few weeks back. So you guys already know Rob's background. You just heard from Alex. Um, we also obviously have Dr. Ashby and Dr. Ashby, do you want to kind of just, I, I know everybody already knows you. Everybody's heard any, anytime arrows get brought up, your name's brought up. Um, but just kind of give a little background of who you are. I'm, I'm curious before we get into the 12 factors, why did you even start this in the first place? Well, it, uh, you know, I, I had bow hunted probably 25 years and uh, all the traditional bows. And I decided, oh, okay, you know, it's time to catch up with the modern world. So I read up on all the magazines and this and that, the other. Ended up getting a uh, compound. It was a dark uh, 60 pound, if I remember right. And, uh, you know, I thought it was everything the magazines were saying. I said, oh, okay, you know, I'm, I got, of course, mechanicals that exist then, but I got uh, some multi-blade, replaceable blade type heads. 
the white eras and everything they were talking about. And uh, I was in Minnesota at the time, working in the reservation up there. And uh, that year, I hit and failed to recover four deer. I had never done that. I had never shot a deer that I didn't at least get an exit wound on. And I didn't have exits on any of those four. And uh, I said, well, something's wrong. Now, I come from a rifle shooting background. Uh, Dad was an NR rifle instructor. And uh, I started shooting my first competition when I was five years old. Wow. Uh, and, you know, ballistics and all these things were common topics at home. And I was used to being able to, if I want to know something, go to the research. You know, I, I figured, okay, I'll look at, I'll find some, some research on terminal performance of errors. Why, what's not working? And I was looking for something like uh, pastor's work or chamberlain's work uh, with rifles. And uh, there was nothing. Not a word. Absolutely nothing. So I decided, well, I'm going to have to research this some of my own just to find out, you know, what the heck's going on and, and what's uh, what give me some better term performance out there. And uh, so I started keeping records. That was about 82. And uh, then fate sort of stepped in because I had uh, requested from, from South Africa if there was any chance of, of hunting a rhino with one arrow. And this was about five years earlier. And of course, the answer came back no, oh, it's not legal in South Africa. And so I kind of forgot about it. And the Carl Parks Board <clears throat> decided they wanted to look at bowling as a possibility. They wanted to research it first, get some hard data, and uh, you know, see how feasible it was. And so they were discussing this, as they tell me, they had a meeting. And somebody there at the table, and I think it was Spud Lincoln, but I'm not sure about that. Said, so, you know, somebody wrote me about wanting to hunt a rhino with a bow and arrow four or five years ago. And I may still have this letter. So they went and uh, dug into files and sure enough found it. And they called on the phone and uh, asked if I was still interested in doing that. And it didn't take me. <laughs> the words went out of their mouth before I said yes. Uh, and so I went over to do this rhino line. Well, I didn't know at the time this was part of this research project. And when I got over there and was doing the line, uh, we talked a lot about our tree and so forth. And uh, they asked me if I'd like to come back the next year. And, and do another rhino and be sure it wasn't a fluke. And they were going to do some research in Makuzi Park in the Tall. Every year they have to call off several thousand animals just to keep the number of animals 
within the bearing capacity of the bar. And uh, could I, you know, bring over as much equipment as I could bring over different arrow setups and different broadheads. Uh, they wanted to look at how effective it was of uh, the different types of equipment, different types of arrows. And uh, so <laughs> naturally, I was more than happy to do that. And so I went back over and did the rhino. And then we went down to Macuzzi for a month. And uh, basically, we were set up there. We were we were live shooting animals. And uh, we were backed up with a rifle. So that if the shot was not, didn't look like it was going to be a lethal hit or it was any question, then they would put the animal down with the rifle with a shot somewhere remote from where the arrow was. And uh, then we would look at, at what happened. And, and they wanted they wanted the shots taken any time we thought we could make the shot. So they were interested in what happens with bad hits. Yes, from all sorts of angles. So we were taking shots that normally wouldn't a bow hunter wouldn't take. Uh, and, and when we dissect the animals, we keep careful notes. If we could not determine in the field, you know, whether we would have been a lethal hit or not, uh, they had veterinarians on the staff. And they could take it in. They would dissect it and give us an exact determination. Was that lethal hit or would it not have been? And uh, that got me started. At the end of it, we about wrote up my report, sent it in as part of the part of the talk. Uh, but I had more questions than I had answers at the end of it. So I decided, okay, just from my own knowledge, I'll keep going. And it just grew and grew and grew. And I got more and more information. And finally, I decided, you know, what I'm finding needs to be available to the hunting public. So started trying to get stuff published and did get a lot published all around the world, but couldn't get anything published here. Uh, and uh, some of the magazines would <clears throat> give me the excuse that, well, these are African animals. That, that's not African to North America. But a few were pretty honest and said, you know, some of our advertisers' products are not reflected favorably in yeah. what's right now. So we can't publish that. And I did get some encouragement from uh, some well-known writer, uh, archery, bow-hunting writers, privately, but uh, that it needed to be, you know, keep after the information needed to be collected and eventually we get stuff published. They were right eventually we did, but it took a long time. How and, long ago uh, how long ago was this that you're you're talking about? Like you tend to think of the marketing game for arrows today as being a fairly I recent thing. Been, how, uh, uh, 85. So this started a long time ago with with the arrow thing. Yeah. So it's it's been going for a long time. And excuse my cracking voice, but I have a lot of problems with sinuses out here. <laughs> <laughs> You're all good. Peter dust everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I you know, as I built more and more and more data 
every time I would do a series of tests was for all carefully planned out ahead of time, I would end up with a whole bunch of new questions. And uh, I never got to the end of all of it, which is why we have the foundation. Try to keep going to find some more of these, more of these answers. But uh, uh, when I retired in 94, uh, I just moved to liquidate everything in the States, moved to Africa, and uh, just essentially testing full time. And, uh, you know, I had, after I was in Africa, things fell apart over there. That's a long story itself. Uh, I came back to the States, kind of reorganized. Then I went down to Australia. Uh, it's in Australia, New Zealand, New Guinea, that part of the world down there. Because the Australians turned out offered a, a, a lot of the Asian buffalo that I, uh, that I continued testing on. And the buffalo was the perfect test animal for heavy bones. One of the most ribs overlap and they're full about uh, bulls be a little over eight tenths of an inch thick rib. Uh, so you can hit a bone on every shot. And it's a bone that the rib bone of the buffalo, very comparable uh, to hitting the leg bone uh, of a white tail. Or an animal of that size, as far as the density, thickness, and density of bone. <clears throat> so it was just an ideal, ideal testing. But uh, basically, that's where we got started with it. And, you know, it just mushroomed all the way up till I broke my back in 2008. And uh, then it couldn't do anymore. And uh, then in 2017, uh, Group ups got together and we formed the foundation and uh, to carry on with the research. But that's basically where the uh, where the research came from. What got me started on the homestead. Well, and that's why you know I think it's so important to have you guys on shows like this, <clears throat> and you know having bringing Alex on for social media presence and things like that. Um, this is extremely if if you actually love bow hunting, um, I think you've got a couple different types of hunters. I think you got guys that you've got your gun hunters, you've got your casual hunters, but there's a big, big, big amount of us that love bow hunting beyond just a, a surface level. And the work that the foundation's doing, it, it needs to keep going. It needs to get in front of more people because, you know, you, you talk to people who like to shoot light and fast. And I, I originally, I wanted to do like, here's the case for heavy arrows, heavier arrows. Here's the case for light arrows. I can't find anybody with any scientific not, uh, data to back up the light and fast arrows. Well, I mean, you've got a lot of opinion, but you don't have people running tests as to why, why should I shoot a 415 grain arrow? Why would that be sufficient? It's like, well, cause it's fast. What, what else? Cause it works for me. That's okay, what you it works get. until it doesn't. Yeah, you get a lot of, well, if you just focus on shot placement, which we talked about that before, like you guys said, I think you said, you know, shot placement's fine, but the animal gets a vote. And uh, so it's, I, I really appreciate what you have done, Dr. Ashby, and what the foundation continues to do, which is why I'm more than happy to bring you guys in. Because once you look at the data that you guys have collected and the results that you've come up with, 
it's really hard to walk away from it and be like, nah, nah, that's a load. That's a load of crap. I appreciate that, that background. Cause I, I didn't know any of that. And I, a lot of people, you know, you cut right into like talking about arrows. So it's cool to know like how it all came to be to begin with. So with that, why don't we just cut into the 12 factors? I'm going to kind of just let you and Rob, um, take that over. We can just start, like I said, I've got them in front of me here. So we'll start number one, structural integrity and whoever wants to take that, go for it. But before we jump into those, a few things about the factors. The factors came out as a culmination of analyzing the data from 27 years of, of, of the data we have. And it's several thousands of shots. On every shot back then, I was collecting 119 data points off of each shot. Now, with the newer equipment and newer things that are available now, the data we're collecting for foundation, we're collecting just over 250 data points off every shot. So this stuff comes out of the analysis of a tremendous amount of data. And what we tried to do was rate the factors in order of importance when you take all shots into consideration. But you have to realize that the factors can shift under certain conditions. So that when you Get a heavy bone. You know, the, the top four factors, when you look at it overall, you, you have uh, structural integrity, quality of error flight, uh, the FOC of the error, and the mechanical advantage to broadhead. But when a heavy bone enters the picture, one and two never change. They are always there. So structural integrity and perfect error flight are always there. When that heavy bone is hit, the third factor becomes error mass above the heavy bone threshold, which taken overall is the number 12 factor. And the other one is the type of edge belt when a heavy bone is in time. It becomes number four. So the, the ratings, you have to look at them as, okay, this is overall, but you have to realize certain types of hit, certain individual factors become more important. Now, take it individually. Each and every factor boosts your error's penetration potential. So if you omit or diminish any of the factors, it reduces your error penetration, at least in some conditions. Now, it's impossible to anticipate ahead of time what each hit's going to be. So it's impossible to know beforehand which penetration factors become most important. So maximizing your successful hits, wounding and losing or wounding and not recovering animals requires incorporation of its meaning of the penetration enhancing factors. Yeah. And the other thing to realize is the factors 
compound each other. So that if you have tendency to penetration and one individual factor gives you a 20% increase, well, that's going to give you two more inches or 12 inches of penetration. Then if you introduce a second factor that gives you a 20% increase, well, that second 20% increase is going to give you 2.4 inches of penetration gain instead of just the two inch. And so it goes with each factor. So if they build upon each, each other, and the thing about the factors is the bow hunter needs to look at this as a toolbox. Nobody's telling you he's got to use them all, but they're all there. He can pick and choose and pull out the factors he wants to use. Any factor you add in is going to improve the terminal performance of your errors. And things that you leave out are not going to change the setup that you got. It's not going to add anything. Now, let's get into the factors. So, like I said, the first one is the structural integrity. And it is the most important factor. And it applies to every aspect of your error. In the data, even a tiny, tiny bend at the tip of an arrow, one so small that you almost have to feel with your thumbnail, average of penetration loss is 14%. Wow. Just as for having a sharp broadhead, structural integrity should be a given requirement for every hunting error. Now, with our new study, we've developed a way to rate the better rating system. And a failure of structural integrity of significant amount gives an automatic F on that broad end, that error setup. So your structural integrity is an absolute must-have error design feature. And without it, no other factor can be relied on. Rob, Alex, you got anything you want to add there? No, I mean, like you said, it's it's really the foundation of the entire system, right? No different than a house. If the foundation isn't solid, it doesn't matter what the rest of the, the print looks like. You could have the most mass, great FOC, everything else but if that core element isn't there it's it's going to fail and it might be you know a failure like doc mentioned of you know a small tip curl that causes it to deviate off path and now you didn't hit what you think you hit or it could be complete failure where I don't think people recognize how significant the leverage aspect is for the broadhead against the rest of the system. So if, if the broadhead starts bending or starts failing where it's getting 
out of line with the rest of the shaft. One, there's going to be a significant increase in resistance, but all of that resistance is going to be acting off of the natural line and then compounding with whatever the, you know, the lever point is. And that's where you see all the, the failures in the shafts because something got off. Now it's pushing at a different angle and shafts aren't really intended to take side load, right? They're great at frontal. They're not, not very good at side loads. Right. And so that's where it's the, you know, that solid foundation that lets everything else work. That's, you know, it's funny because that's one of the, like, I think we talked about before the quality of the, um, material, whatever the material ends up being that, that a lot of people's broadheads are made of the quality of the, the steel isn't there. And the thickness of some of these mechanical blade, and not even mechanical. I mean, you see it on fixed blades too. They're so thin and, but it's not something people even think or care about a lot of times. Another thing with broadheads is the sharpness. A lot of people think that they buy a new pack of broadheads, you know, mechanicals or fixed and that out of the package, they are sharp enough. Um, until I found the factors, I never thought about broadhead sharpness. Right. I just figured, you know, I bought these, they're good to go for them on the end of my arrows and off I went. Well, the package well, said razor sharp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's actually, uh, I guess, another piece of the structural integrity discussion is the retention, right? Yeah. So even if something is extremely sharp, how well does it hold it? How yeah. long does it stay sharp? And like for most people, you, you don't have access to a best tester or, you know, anything else to, you know, quantify that sharpness level. So the easy rule of thumb is if it's not sharp, like shaving sharp or whatever, you know, your gauges after the animal then it's a question mark you, you don't know when it dulled out it could have dulled out right after entering the thoracic cavity it might have dulled out after exiting the backside you don't know and the only way you know to to guarantee that it was cutting cleanly the entire way as if it's still sharp afterwards yeah oh excellent okay uh we're ready for perfect air of flight that's yep. the second factor now, perfect air of flight means an extremely well-tuned air and perfect air of flight is the enabler for every other factor when that air is flying perfect it delivers more usable force on the target. Less of the aero's force has been used up in unstable aeroflight. So aeroflight permits the additional factors to work at the full efficiency of what their potential is. 
poor error flight just squanders your error force. And you should never spare any effort or any expense to achieve absolutely perfect error flight, regardless of what kind of error you should Now, these first two factors apply to everything. And really, a bow hunter should not be hunting with an arrow that doesn't meet at least these two first factors. And you can make every arrow meet these requirements as long as that arrow spine, dynamic spine, is balanced to the arrow setup you have and the bow you're using. Now, even if you have every other factor in place, without a good arrow flight, you're still going to have poor terminal error performance. However, if you ignore those other design features, all you're going to end up with is a perfect flying error that still performs poorly on some hits, which is going to negate your structural integrity and perfect flight advantage. So these factors all build, just like Rob said, perfect analogy, on this foundation of having the structural integrity and perfect error flight. Rob, Alex, anything you want to add here? No. Um, yes, oh. a couple of things that I would mention. Um, I guess I know you already noted how mm-hmm. interconnected a lot of these are. Um, and this is. Uh, I guess a key one because you could have what should be the toughest system ever. You know, it's footed, it's great materials, covers all the bases. If your arrow isn't flying cleanly, it's significantly more likely to fail. And so on top of the efficiency aspects if that arrow is coming in and impacting off the uh, direction of movement if it's at an angle at all compared to its direction it's an energy dump you're going to be creating large amounts of flex you're going to be exacerbating all you know, the uh, actual penetration direction and angle, because once that broadhead bites in, if if everything's off and it starts flexing, guess, guess what? The broadhead is pointing and cutting whatever direction based on that flex. And that's, I mean, you can see it all over the place on, you know, YouTube, hunter channels or even on mainstream you know uh hunting shows where it'll be a relatively broadside shot and all of a sudden the arrow exits you know behind the ribs on the other side or comes out the bottom or whatever but it wouldn't be doing that if it was hitting clean and hold and holding together, 
right? So it's uh, definitely a critical point, not just in the fact that we want the flight clean to be able to hit where we're intending, um, but it can drastically impact how the system holds together as a whole. Um, and as far as knowing if your flight is clean, I know that I get that question a lot. Not everyone is going to bear shaft, um, right. but easiest thing is do your broadheads hit where they're supposed to, because the majority of people that lean towards like mechanicals are doing it because they hit with their field points. Right. And so now they think, oh yeah, like this is better because it's hitting where I want it to. It's only doing that because your flight's not good. And by minimizing the surface area, it's not deviating during that recovery. Right. So that's any fixed blade should hit with field points, right? Yeah. It's, and, you know, people get technical all the time on this. Yes, there's a different drag. Yes, there's going to be small deviations, but we're talking functionally, even at 60, 70, 80 yards, it'll still hold that pattern. It'll still be hitting where you want Yeah. if it's coming out clean. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to dumb it down even more, like I just have the picture in my head of like when we were kids and this kind of, it's going to kind of touch on the next, the next one as well. But like, you almost instinctively know that when you throw a stick at something, you make your little spear when you're playing Cowboys and Indians or whatever, you instinctively know you want the front end of it to be heavier. And I just imagine, yeah, when you're talking perfect aeroflight in terms of, you know, hit, you know, hitting the animal and getting through, if you've ever thrown a stick and it throws sideways, you know, right away, like that's not going to work in your, you know, your little game you're playing in your head. You want that thing traveling perfectly straight. Mm -hmm. And again, to, to your point, I don't know why that doesn't translate over into bow hunting because that's something we all did as kids before we even, we didn't know anything about any 12 factors, but you know that you you want that perfect arrow flight, but then when it comes to bow hunting, like you said, I I know I've talked to people and I'm like, you know, the broadhead thing comes up and it's like, oh, I shoot fix. And I go, oh, I, I tried that one time. They were six inches off of my field points. But when I put those mechanicals on, they're right there. And it's like, well, why didn't you figure out why they're six inches off? Your bow's not like your bow doesn't just magically change where the rest was and it just shoots them different. Like there's a reason it's shooting off, but. Well, and that's a challenge right now across the industry, at least in the U S um, is I don't know how many shops I've been in that have flat out told me that fixed blades don't fly well. And, and those are the experts. Those are the guys setting up bows and, and trying to educate people on what they should be using and what, you know, they should be trying to achieve. Right. So 
it's hard to blame the general, you know, hunting public when they're not the experts. They're going yeah. to whoever they feel is knowledgeable um, and being told this information. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to flat out say it. A pro shop is not like professional. It's promotional. They're pushing and selling what the mainstream hunting industry is pushing and selling, which is speed and right. mechanicals. Um, Doc mentioned earlier before we started, like, well, how I found the factors. I uh, started bow hunting when I was 13. So this is my 18th season. Um, I've taken a lot of deer with my bow, but um, five years ago now, I think it's yeah, five been, or six. Uh, I shot a doe and I'm sitting there looking at my arrow sticking straight up and down out of the ground going, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. Why is my air like sticking straight up and down in the ground? Like I knew I hit her. I knew how she took off. Like, what is this? And the only thing I can come up with is it went in, deflected off a rib and shot out the bottom of her cavity. Um, a rib, a, a white tail rib, should not stop an arrow. Like that's yeah. just not acceptable. Uh, so same season, I shot a buck and I have always had this like irrational fear in my head of the front shoulder because mm -hmm. several years prior to that, I hit a big buck in the shoulder and made, like I achieved minimal penetration and maybe two inches, the broadhead snapped off in the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Um, so I hit it a little him a little further back this one because I was like subconsciously just afraid of hitting that shoulder. And now, mind you, um, the first few deer I have ever taken, I took with a fixed head, either Thunderhead or Muzzy. I never had I didn't have penetration issues. I had pass throughs. Um, then all of a sudden, my dad and my brother switched to shooting rages. And I'm like, well, if you're switching to rages, then I am too, because why not? That's what the mainstream industry is shooting. That's what everyone's shooting. You're shooting it. I can too. Right. So that's when I switched and then, okay, that dope sticking straight up and down on the ground, obviously it deflected off something. So structural integrity, arrow flight, I'm sure I had a mix of everything going wrong there to cause these failures. Well, then I shot this buck and hit him a little bit back. It was still lethal, but I wasn't comfortable going for him that night. So we went to go look for him the next day and I felt like crap. I mean, anybody that does not expire their animal right away or recovers it, I mean, it's a bad feeling. You never want to go home and have to try and sleep wondering if you just wounded an animal. Right. So uh, we ended up finding that deer. But I'm like, man, I am. Something isn't right. Um, these deer deserve better. I should, they're not expiring as fast as I want them to. Like, I want these complete pass-throughs. Like, why am I not getting them? So I ended up going, stopping at a local tavern and grabbing a bite to eat after hunting one night. And there was two guys, just a couple stools down from me that were talking. Yes, I was eavesdropping, okay? <laughs> they were talking about um, back in the day when they started hunting. So this would be around, you know, 85 or whatever, um, how they'd shoot and... They could go get a cup of coffee and still come back to watch the arrow make point of impact because it was so slow, <laughs> but they still, um, they always got pass-throughs. So I went home and I was like, all right, 
what was different than verse now? Uh, aluminum arrows. So they're naturally Heavy. heavier compared to, you know, the carbon. And everyone shot fixed heads, really. Um, thunderheads were pretty big. And that's about 125 grain head usually. So, you know, heavier shaft, heavier arrow, fixed head at 125 grains. So a little bit higher FOC. All right. So my brain starts thinking here, like, what can I do to change what I'm shooting here, which was either Rages or Grim Reapers on the end of Carbon Express. I mean, I think mm -hmm. my initial arrow build weighed a total of like high 300s yeah, it was like and it was like 11% FOC. Like yeah. looking back now, I didn't know any better, but I'm like, I'm disgusted that I was hunting with that. Cause to me, that's personally for myself, that's not ethical. And the whole, like, I want to be as ethical and lethal as possible. The game that I'm pursuing deserves that they deserve to die as quickly as, and as relatively pain, like painless as possible. Right. Um, so that's how I found this eventually, I guess, um, I plugged it into Google random words, trying to find <laughs> something that made sense. Right. And I mean, now you would find the Ash reports likely, um, I, at the time I was struggling finding anything. Um, they weren't super well out there yet at the time. I kept finding stuff about, um, uh, kinetic energy, but then, and I was in a group random group, Wisconsin bonding group, and trying to talk about this stuff with people. And someone found me and ended up bringing me back to this person here. <laughs> and I mean, that's really all she wrote. Um, so like these factors, like I found these factors and like, they've touched on it several times now. Like a lot of people like to think, well, the ABF says you have to do this. You have to shoot a 650 grain arrow. Like not at all. Like doc, doc will say it, doc will back me up on this. Like you shoot as heavy as you can. That gives you a trajectory that you're still comfortable with, that you can live with. And you implement as many of the factors from the 12 penetration factor list as you can to your build based on the terrain you're hunting, the animal you're pursuing, your, you know, lethal distance that you're comfortable shooting. But at the end of the day, the first two factors are like, you know, the foundation of your build. Right. Um, and ever since I've changed, I went from that arrow build to a 525 grain build uh, with mid 20s FOC shooting a 200 grain uh, Maasai up front. Now, if I was shooting 42 pounds at the time with a 24 inch draw length and I can get my 200 grain like big broadhead to hit <laughs> with my field points, I think anyone can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but ever since I've switched. Every deer that I have shot, I have watched die with an eyesight in, in seconds. Yeah. Like, it's just insane to me that I went from having to leave deer lay overnight because I wasn't sure if they were um, expired yet or I was going to jump them to watching them die like seconds after point of impact is made. So like these factors are crucial and the people that don't want to hear it are the people that have the mainstream hunting industry just have a hold on. Well, and there's, they're still in that phase where right. you were, where you had success. Right. Right? It was working. And for a lot of people, that's what it is, is if it's working, it's tough to change. Yeah. But it's now, like Vincent said earlier, there's people that like to bow hunt. And then there's people that, that it's more, more to them. And that's where I am. You know, my whole life revolves around archery and bow hunting and, if I couldn't be as lethal and ethical as possible in that woods, 
I would walk away because that's what the animals deserve. If I'm not giving them my best, whether it's on me and I need to practice more or I need to change my equipment, whatever. If I'm not willing to do that, I don't deserve to be in that woods. But, and that's where you were at. When, when you came yeah. into the shop and, and first started asking questions on this was like, if, if something doesn't change, then like, I'm going to be done yeah. because this isn't, you know, what's happening isn't acceptable. And right. like anybody that knows me, like that would kill me. Like bow hunting is literally my life, yeah. but I was willing to hang it up if I couldn't fix what was wrong to be more lethal and ethical in the woods because that's what they deserve. And I think everybody needs to get their mindset a little bit right on that. Yeah. And I wonder how, you know, a lot of times I think when someone does have a, we'll just call it like a oops moment with, you know, it's the failure. I think that's one thing like you hear, well, I, you know, maybe one time, well, I guess to speak to failures, I think sometimes people's arrow failures, they don't realize that it's a failure. They go out, they shoot. Like you said, they go find their arrow. It's sticking straight out of the ground. Awesome. It was easy to find a stick, you know, but they don't think about why. But I feel like for a lot of the hunting community, it's acceptable to, well, let's let it lay for eight hours. I think it was a liver shot. I think I might've shot back. Let's just let it lay there for eight hours. And I think that's just become part of hunting. Like, well, you know, you see these charts of like, wherever you think your arrow hit is the amount of time that you should give that animal. And like we said, nobody's perfect. Nobody's always just going to blast the heart every single time, watch it die 20 yards away. But I think to your point, you should, you should demand more out of your, yourself and your system um, to where you really shouldn't. I don't know. I don't like the idea of, well, I think I hit back. So we're just going to let it lay there for 12 hours. Like, and I wonder if that just became more acceptable over time. Like if you were to ask our grandparents or whatever, back in the day when they were shooting heavier systems, like how often did that happen back then? Well, that's kind of where I got from listening to those people talk. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like they always had pass-throughs. They had, you know, they had something to go on. I mean, tools is better than one, you know, and I said, I would, I would sometimes subconsciously hit further back, but I mean, I, I shot a lot of deer in, you know, the lungs and the heart still using mechanicals, but I still never got pass-throughs. And when you're sitting 24 feet up a tree and, you know, it's like a 24 yard shot, you know, that what were we looking for here? Angle? the angle is so steep that the one buck I shot, I was a 13 pointer. Uh, it was a perfect shot, but the angle was so steep and I didn't just have, I didn't have the juice to penetrate through the other side for a pass through and it stayed in there and we couldn't find a drop. There was not a drop of blood. And I mean, it took us forever to find that deer. Well, and to your point, Vincent, um, it, this has been a, a long process to get to where we are. Right. And it's, it's self-feeding because as things got lighter, as broadheads kept getting wider, as the blades got thinner and weaker, everyone slowly but surely started promoting yep. further back, mm-hmm. further back. 
the 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 shoulder blade is impossible now and you need to aim back here and then what happens if you're aiming back and now you do have an oops not now where are you yeah right and honestly that's one of the biggest things with folks that i've worked with is getting them into a system that actually is uh, following the factors, but then having to recondition how they shoot yeah. and going, no, like be confident, like what we've put together and what you have covered in the factors, you should be confident putting that arrow where it needs to go. Yeah. And all of a sudden everything starts dropping over, right? Because now you're aiming up in the front of the chest. You're aiming where all of the blood vessels and the arteries are the most densely packed and the largest. Yeah. The further back you get, everything starts spreading out and thinning. And so it's kind of just full circle, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of funny because... It it's almost like it's like from start to, to, you know, heavy, heavy fixed blade time goes on light mechanical, as you mentioned, shot placements moved back. It's nowadays, a lot of people would tell you, even if you have a quote unquote plan B arrow for that shoulder, if you're even considering shooting the shoulder, that's unethical. Well, and that's where, I mean, everyone says the shoulder but there is so much real estate there Yeah, that, I mean, I don't know how many people I've spoke with that don't even like recognize that you have, you know, where the leg comes up, comes forward, and then the shoulder blade comes back. There's an entire pocket there that yeah. is nothing but meat. And see, when I first started, I thought before I looked into anatomy, I just assumed that was all bone. Like that, tri yeah. that magic triangle, you know, where the, the bone structure, uh -huh. I just assumed that was shoulder blade. So don't shoot there. And it's like, no, nah, it's actually like the, <laughs> it's exactly where you need to go on a perfect <laughs> scenario. Yeah. Right. But, but that's, you know, same here. I, I grew up being told hit them behind the front shoulder, well mm -hmm. behind the front shoulder. Then once something you have a whoopsie and you're back too far, you're like, Oh, lung, liver, guts, like, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's move on to number three. This is going to be, you know, one of the biggest, one of the biggest terms that we hear out there in the aero community, FOC. So doc, you want to take, take it away with FOC? Okay. Our third factor is extreme FOC. Now, most people don't really understand what FOC is, what we're talking about. It basically means weight forward of center or what the percentage difference is between the geographical center of the arrow, in other words, half the wing, and the balance point. Now, this is strictly a made-up reference system. It has nothing to do with true FOC. True FOC is an aeronautical term 
and it refers to the distance between the center of gravity of a projectile in flight and the center of pressure of a projectile in flight. And that distance can change depending on angle of attack of the wind, all sorts of things. So what we're using is not true FOC. It's a reference point, just like measuring the static spine. The static spine is so we can have a reference point to do predicted error. It has nothing to do with, it, with how it's going to shoot off the boat. That's the dynamic spine. So totally different things. But it's a reference point we use for building the error. FOC, true FOC of an object in flight has a great bearing on its stability or object moving on the ground as far as that goes. A uh, good example would be uh, something like the F-22 Raptor, which has almost a neutral 0% weight forward to center in flight. That makes it highly maneuverable. It can fly almost sideways. It is so unstable, a human cannot fly it without computer sense. We can't react fast enough to do it. So there is a, a difference between that and something that has a really high FOC. The higher the FOC, the more stable an object in motion is. In other words, the harder it is to get to deviate off his course. And that's exactly what we want in an arrow. We want stable flight. Now, it's important to remember that an arrow is always flying once it leaves the boat. It flies through the air. It flies through the skin, the fascia, muscles, bone. If it exits, it flies through the air again. When it hits the dirt, it flies through the dirt until it comes to a stop. Then it's no longer flying. So it's always in flight. Another way to think about the effect of FOC is in automobiles. If you have a very neutral or very low FOC, then the car is very maneuverable, but also very sensitive. So you could think about something like uh, the Grand Prix cars that need to be highly maneuvered. As you get this lower FOC, cars will tend to oversteer. So if you make a small correction, it makes a big difference in where the car is aimed. But if you have a car that's very fronted, it'll go down the highway and you, you know, on a straight road, you take your hands off the wheel. It'll just cruise right straight on down. But when you start to steer it to go around a curve, it takes more force. Now, people that have grown up with power steering don't realize how much force that is. I grew up when power steering just wasn't a thing you had. And most of the cars were built with big, heavy engines. Yeah. Talking about the era where we started to get into the V8s, big, heavy engines up front. And it took a lot of arm strength to turn those cars, to get them to, to deviate. They were very stable. 
They want to keep going straight. This is what we're looking for in an error. So realize the difference between the true FOC and what we're measuring. What we're measuring gives us an indication of the type of true FOC you get. But it is not the true FOC. It is the reference point we use to be able to duplicate that when we build another error. Now, let's get a little bit into the definitions. Now, I had to make up some of these definitions when I started researching FOC because I had to be able to differentiate between the different groups. So I started out with normal FOC. That was at or below 12%. And I picked that up from existing charts, Eastern charts, things like that. They considered this normal. FOC for an error. And they consider high FOC to be anything above 12%. I think Easton used to say 12 to 15%. But I put FOC as between 12 and 19%. Now I use 19% because at 19%, I had the first measurable definite penetration gain that I could contribute, attribute totally to the FOC of the error. And we were doing this with errors that were identical externally. Same shaft diameter, same broadheads, same fletching error, everything the same, except for the FOC. And so at 19%, I started seeing the penetration gain. As I continued on investigating FOC, I found a need to expand that into starting at 19% and going up to 30%. I call that extreme FOC. And then above 30%, I defined as ultra extreme FOC. Now I use 30% because with the components available at the time, it was extremely difficult and really took a concerted effort and sometimes custom-built components to reach 30%. Now you can do that quite easily. Uh, there's a lot more components available, a lot better shafting, wider shafting available from the stiff enough. Uh, so 30% is fairly achievable for most people. You know, unless you're a grill and shooting 32, 33, 34 inch errors, <laughs> then it becomes more difficult, but still doable. But you end up with an awful error. So when we got to testing extreme FOC, and initially I thought FOC was not going to be a, a big factor, which shows you how wrong you can be when you just assume something. Extreme FOC does more than any other defined features except flight quality. So maximize the effect you get from other factors. All of the extreme FOC testing showed very high penetration gains. And they are progressively cumulative gains. So if the gain you get from 19 to 
is not as great as the percentage gain you get from 20 to 21 and so forth on up. Every increase you make gives you a higher percentage gain in the penetration that at that next lowest percentile level. So it really adds up. And it's amazing. It seems to be right around 26% that it really starts making big gains with each 1% increase. And we can quantify it to a degree. Uh, we still need a lot more data to pin it down exactly. But the penetration gains you can get extreme FOC can range anywhere from 40 to 60% compared to an era that has 12% FOC. So it's a significant gain in penetration. Anybody want to add anything there? I was just going to say, FOC is the most important when you uh, have impact on something hard, correct? Well, no, it, it actually has no effect on the heavy bone threshold, which we'll get to after a while and why. But the post-brain. But the big difference it makes is once you reach the bone, yes. it has a huge effect. Because it keeps the arrow on its intended path. Correct. Yeah. Up till you breach the bone, it really doesn't make any difference in being able to get through the bone. Yeah. Once through the bone, it's one of the biggest factors you can have. For one thing, you've got that stable flight, which means it wants to keep going straight. It doesn't want to deviate or veer, which is going to pull that shaft straight through the hole, through the bone that's been, been created where you breach the bone. Yeah, and that's one thing to <clears throat> kind of wrap your, your head around is an arrow is always flying. Whether it's flying through the air, flying through muscle, flying through bone, it, it's flying. And so that stability is across all of that, right? Um, and so again, this is where everything kind of feeds. So if you have higher FOC, it's going to be easier because of that stability to have your perfect flight. Right. If you have higher FOC, now the front of your shaft is acting stiffer because it's a shorter lever, less flex, less leverage applied to the shaft. Now it's more durable, right? And so it's it compounds and like reinforces the core items that are above it mm -hmm. right that's the the one big thing that some people can get in trouble with is trying to like hit a certain number without thinking about the sacrifices that they're making right 
Um, especially with like today's shafts, you have some like extremely light options that are on the market, which can be really tempting because if, if a, you know, if your normal shaft for your spine is say around nine or 10 grains per inch, and this other one, this ultralight shaft is at six, that's a lot of FOC that you could get with a very similar build, but at what cost? Right. How did, you know, is, is it a really light shaft because it's using, you know, a new resin, but it's, you know, really durable still, or is it just a really thin walled shaft? Right. And so you definitely need to make sure that you're keeping the full picture in mind. And I mean, in a lot of cases, I look at FOC as the result of a good build, right? If from a very simple starting out kind of standpoint, if you pick a more durable, heavier broadhead, and then you pick a more durable component, you're going to increase your FOC, even if you don't change anything else. Right. Right. And then even without getting crazy, you can switch from veins to feathers. Yeah. And that's going to have significantly more impact on, on where that balance point is than adding another 25 grains up front. Yeah. Right. And so that's where, you know, you want to maximize, but you need to think about how you approach it. Yeah. Right. Well, Cause it's, it's a lot easier to uh, take weight off the tail and, you know, five grains on the tail can do what 50 grains up front can in, you know, a lot of cases. Uh, so as much as they can be nice, you know, veins, if you have three blazers, 18 grains. If I put three, you know, uh, gateway razors, or if I do like Doc's A and A cut, little two inch feathers, you're probably looking at five to six grains total for those feathers, right? Yeah. And having a standard knock instead of a lighted knock, that can be 10 grains not having a wrap, right? It's all little things, but a lot of times people don't think about it where like they'll put this great build together and then they'll put four veins on the back that each weigh eight grains. They'll put a 10 inch wrap on it, <laughs> put, put a lighted knock on it and then go, oh man, like, I really thought I was going to have more front of center. Like I've got 300 grains up front. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, you, you would, but you added 25 or 30 grains to the tail. 
Well, it's so, interesting when you when you kind of brought up how big of a different how it you know taking a little bit of weight off the back um, as opposed to just slamming it all on the front. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you look at if you were to just ask anybody, myself included, like you know, does does eighteen grains on the back end? really make that big of a difference i would tell you no i mean it's it's such a small number in you know yeah in comparison to the the whole build when you're talking like let's just say like let's just say my arrow this year 585 you know yeah my buddy you can shoot lighted knocks and it's like well yeah why not but you're adding all those you know however many more grains to me it seems like it wouldn't make any bit of bit of a difference but mm-hmm. turns and it's out, all leverage right yeah, it's, it's yeah. levers so if you've got a a 30 inch arrow and your balance point bear is at say 15 inches so you're at you know uh what 25% forward of the physical center I guess I said the numbers wrong there, but if it's a 30 inch arrow, you wouldn't be 15. And yeah. But if you were halfway, if you were right. at the, the quarter, right. Halfway right. from the end in the physical middle, you'd be at 25%. And now that means that you've got three quarters of that shaft is the tail. Yeah. Right. That's a long lever compared to the quarter of it on the front. And with looking at the leverage, what happens the longer your lever gets? Right. If you grab a six inch ratchet and then you grab a three foot ratchet, yeah. big breaker bar, what changes? Yeah. You don't need as much effort. To get the same results, right? It's the same thing. Is putting a bunch of weight on a you know six-inch section of that shaft is great, but the other end of it is acting on you know twenty-four inches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So moving on to number four, this is one that, you know, I'm reading over. It makes sense when I read it, but I haven't, I haven't personally paid much attention to it, I guess, because I just didn't understand it, but mechanical advantage. I'm excited to learn a little bit more about all that. So doc, if you want to go ahead and, and dig in on mechanical advantage. All right. Before I do that, what Rob said brought up another thought that worth passing along, because I really don't think I've much about it in reports other than just to mention it. But as I got into using the very, very high ultra extreme FOC arrows, I, I was having to use very lightweight, very thin uh, target shafts to be able to get the FOC that I wanted to work with. And something very unusual popped up in the data that as I got up to those higher levels, I think I got up to about 31.5% of the 
the damage rate of the shafts, even though these were white, thin shafts, dropped off to almost nothing. And I think that has to do with two things. One, because you have that very short forward lever arm, distance from the balance point to the broad head, there's less flex up front on that shaft. So this taking the impact more directly with mm -hmm. longitudinal fibers, longitudinal dimension of the shaft, and the rear shaft being a lot lighter, when the broad head hits something hard and has to slow down, there's less forward push, less forward impulse of force from the shaft pushing forward. Gotcha. And made a significant difference in uh, in damage rate of shafts. Now these are shafts collars didn't exist then. Uh, we did I did some work with making collars out of aluminum shafts to go over uh, carbon shaft. But these shafts had no reinforcement at all. And yet in the testing, I damaged zero. None of them. Uh, so there may be a structural advantage mm -hmm. effect on the shaft by having a very, very lightweight shaft in the back. And yeah. Which yeah and I've, I've seen that same thing, and it's you got to be up there. That's, yeah, I, I think it's in the ultra. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And that's where it can be messy because if, you know, Someone that's at say 20%, great number, solid build, but you're not potentially gonna see those same benefits structurally as someone that's up around 30. Mm -hmm. No, I, um, I do not see it in the in the 20% range. Yeah. Uh, and that's it's actually kind of funny because um I think the most common structural failure that i had seen with my like 25 to like i think the highest that i've ever put together was like 32 percent um is actually the knock yeah knocks pop off a lot <laughs> it's if 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 there was any deviation or you know some skip angle exhibited that tail just becomes a whip <laughs> and the back end of it can uh, take some abuse, but yeah, definitely uh, a difference there once you get up close to that 30. All right. So let's dig into mechanical advantage. Okay. Now mechanical advantage is a, a term for physics applied to a simple machine. And it basically is how much the simple machine can magnify the work that can be done with a given amount of force. So the higher the mechanical advantage of your broadhead, which is just a simple machine of series of inclined planes, that increases the work your error does with whatever useful force is available. Now, the degree of gain is going to vary depending on which broadheads you repair. 
broadhead mechanical advantage has a more pronounced influence on the outcome penetration of a perfectly flying and structurally secure arrow than any other factor except extreme FOC. Higher broadhead mechanical advantage is applicable to all arrows, all designs. It doesn't matter if you go from the broadhead you're using to a broadhead with a higher mechanical advantage, you are going to get more work, more capacity to work out of that error. And the work we're talking about here is penetration. Now, the more efficient all the rest of your error is, the more penetration gain your higher broadhead mechanical advantage is going to give you because you have conserved error force. And that conserved error force is going to be multiplied by the mechanical advantage of the broadhead. Now, so, there are a lot of broadheads out there now, two-blade broadheads, that have a mechanical advantage right around one, which means you're gaining nothing. Mm -hmm. if, it's as, if the cut is as wide as the broadhead is long, then you've got a mechanical advantage of one. You're gaining nothing. Or a two-blade. Two. Yeah. So the so the when you're talking broadheads, your mechanical advantage is going to be increased by would it be like the length of the broadhead and how narrow the broadhead yeah. is? So if you're shooting a real the wide broadhead, your mechanical advantage decreases. Yeah. Okay. The narrower, the longer, the fewer the blades. Okay. If, if you have a three-blade broadhead and each blade is a half-inch high, the center line of the broadhead, it's got to be six inches long to be a three-to-one mechanical advantage. Two-blade broadhead can be an inch wide and three inches long and give you a three-to-one mechanical advantage. So by adding one more blade, you would have to double the length of the broadhead have the same mechanical advantage. With that, I, I do have a question, and it might be kind of off topic, but it's I think it's relevant to the times right now. I feel like last year or the year before, um, when I was getting into wanting to look into that, you know, your reports and and build a heavier arrow, um, it seemed like two blade single bevel was the way to go. Now I've seen a shift from some uh, broadhead companies who were real big on two blade single bevel to now they are introducing a three blade. And it seems like within the world of heavier arrows, a three blades kind of being pushed a little bit. What advantage would a three blade have over a two blade single bevel? And is that just, an, is it just another magical marketing thing for the times? Or is there a reason that people are starting to say, Hey, maybe a three blade is, you know, it's still very heavy. Um, but it seems like they're shifting away from the single bevel and going to this three blade. Um, well, three blades have always been popular with people. Uh, three blade has some drawbacks, though. It is the least efficient broadhead at breaking bone. Four blade makes bone better than a three blade. Now, on a soft tissue hip, they say, well, you get, you get a bigger cut. But they're also not taking into consideration that single bevel heads are rotating. 
and a double bevel head, doesn't matter how many blades, all rotation stops when it hits the, the animal. And you can follow the wound channel through and verify that. There's no doubt about it. But that single bevel continues spiraling. It actually spirals a little faster than it does going through the air because of the pressure differential between the, the bevel side and the unbevel side. So it's making a spiral cut. So the path of that broadhead is cutting edges. The path that they subscribe being a spiral is a longer wound channel than had it went right straight through. And you have some other factors that come in too, like starburst cuts. And we'll talk about those when we talk about edge cuts. A big part of it is there is more, we're getting more attention on the heavier heads, which is allowing those companies to try and tap into some of the other portions of the market, right? There's guys that are diehard three blade, diehard four blade, you know, want a really wide cut and you're not going to produce a product that is just going to sit on the shelf and shelf and add costs, you know, an overhead. Mm-hmm. So now that more people are looking at heavier heads, companies are doing what companies do and expanding to try and pull in other parts of the market that uh, you know they previously couldn't touch. Right. And this is pure speculation on my part, but I think that has a lot to do also with people needing that blood trail to right. find their deer. Um, it's a mental game. And you'll see a lot of people on social media is talking about single bevels. Well, I shot my deer or my animal and, you know, it only went 50 yards, but there was no blood trail. Uh, so that makes people panic. How am I going to find my deer without blood? Um, that's where the art of tracking has been lost. I could talk about that for hours. Um, but also uh, when your deer dies, you know, in seconds, 30, it was 30 yards from point of impact is the general rule of when like a trail would about start like 30 to 50. Yeah. So like, like after the initial rush and shock right you have the spurts and then somewhere you know 30 50 yards down the line you'd have the actual trail start of mm-hmm. a, a blood trail but if your deer is uh you know dying you know within 50 yards of where you shot it or whatever you know 100 yards at the most or 100 yards and in that animal didn't have time to leave a blood trail yeah yeah. So, I mean, if you're watching your deer die, you don't need that anyways. Yeah, so I think a- people have just really become dependent on having that blood trail. They need that, you know, huge, it's just been so ingrained in their heads. You need that two foot wide blood trail, but you right. don't, you really well, don't. And that's the tough part is that it's not the broadhead for blood trail. It's right. where that broadhead travels. 
and where the entrance is and where the exit is and the animal's body position at the time that the arrow was passing through whether it was you know twisted or straight right because you can have phenomenal blood trails with small two blades yeah and you can have horrendous blood trails with two inch wide mechanicals yeah Yeah. last year my buddy hit one with a rage no not a drop of blood and it's one where people put so much stock in the size of the cut or the number of blades and thinking that it is directly tied to what they see on the ground but it's just really not the case um and it's just it's that mental aspect of going oh i I have to have that and not even, you know, giving it a, a chance. Yeah. Well, I've had that. I've had that with buddies or, you know, they can't find blood, can't find blood. And where'd you shoot it? Well, I shot it a little high, but, you know, I, I have this huge expanding uh, razor blade on the front of it. Like there should be blood. And it's like, well, where was your, you know, is, is there, is there an exit wound low at all anywhere? Like I, yeah, I think that, I don't know how the, the whole idea of, you know, a red carpet blood trail even got tied in with a broadhead in the first place. Marketing. Well, it's well, how, it's how they go. sell broadheads. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. But I guess on, on the mechanical, uh, mechanical advantage topic i guess to your earlier point the the easiest way to think about it is a ratio um if you look at any head just mentally compare its overall blade length with the width Mm -hmm. right and that's the longer and narrower that it is the more efficient it is it's if you looked at that broadhead like a ramp, like a wheelchair ramp, mm-hmm. right? It's a lot easier to push that wheelchair up a gradual slope than to try and go straight up the, a wall. Right. Right. If right. you think about some of the mechanicals where, you know, even if it's not extremely wide, you know, say you've got two heads that are both like inch and a quarter and one is a mechanical where the blades are very uh, abrupt, right? Like most of them that you look at, they're, you know, they're like airplane wings, right? Right. So now if that's your ramp, you're starting at the tip at the ferrule and you've got to get to the top. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot more effort to get there. And with our arrows, you have a fixed amount of force, right? Once that arrow leaves, it has 
that is the most that it's ever going to have. It's going to be degrading as it flies. It's going to be degrading as it encounters resistance. So what that then means is the more effort that it takes to traverse that blade, the less work or penetration that, that is going to happen. And that's where like blade count really starts adding up. Cause if you have, you know, if, if it's three inches long, like doc was saying, if it's three inches long and an inch wide, then it's a half inch blade. So it's three divided by a half is six. There's two blades. It's a three mechanical advantage. Mm-hmm. You add an extra blade. Well, now it's six divided by three blades. So now we're at a two. Yeah. And you know, you go to four, even though the, the shape stays the same, you're adding more resistance with each of those blades. And that's and doc, you can chime in here, but the three to one was essentially the point where you couldn't you you were losing structural integrity anywhere beyond that right yeah that's that's essentially where it becomes very difficult to keep the raw head from being and so that's really the kind of um i guess limit is the more efficient you make it the longer and narrower that the tip gets the less durable it is Mm -hmm. and so like even your near three to one heads you really want to start looking at material you want to start looking at how you know the hardness and if you know if there's concerns with it being brittle or if it's not hard enough is that that tip just gonna curl um so there's a lot of little nuances that can play into this one but the core of it is just more efficient um and it's honestly this is one of the factors that anyone can swap out to a different broadhead not change a single other thing they can keep the same weight they can keep everything else the same but if you go from a broadhead that i mean like the stuff that you were using before you made your switch was around like a 0.5 right so you were right off the bat you were having your potential and then you went to the samurai initially didn't you or no? I, I bought those samurais when i went out west for elk yeah but like i guess the samurai is a really easy example it's a triangular you know uh style blade mm-hmm. and i think that one's at like a I don't know, 2.3 or 2.4 but 
you, you think about the potential gain there, going from a 0.5 to something just over two. Yeah. That's an eight times difference. That's oh, huge. Four, four times. It's been a long day. <laughs> but, yeah, but I mean, it's a, that's substantial, right? Yeah. And that's not taking into account any of the other factors. That's just going instead of how having what force and the, the amount of work that you can do, you're going to double it and then double it again because maybe half to one, one to two, right? Right. I mean, you could just look at, you know, the first few deer I, I took, I was shooting, you know, fixed blades, fixed mm-hmm. heads, thunderheads, muzzies. I had passed through those first few deer and then I switched to mechanicals. And then, well, I mean, I should have thought of it sooner. Like, oh, I changed my broadhead and I stopped getting my pass-throughs. But hey, I was getting those big holes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite a trade-off that I would be willing to make anymore. Right. Well, and I don't think, I mean, to that point, like, I I don't think people realize how significant the differences in penetration can be with, like, surely changing your broadhead shouldn't change that much. You know what I mean? Like, when you just look at it on a surface level, you, you wouldn't think it's kind of like the the FOC, like we we're talking about taking weight off the back end. Like it doesn't seem like you're, you're shooting the same grain. Yeah. It seems head. inconsequential. Right. Right. But it's actually very, you know, I, mm-hmm. and so I, I think that also lends to like people, myself particularly, like, I underestimate how much each one of these factors actually plays a huge role in penetration. Like, cause a lot of the stuff, if you just look at it, you would think, ah, it can't make that big of a difference. And it's like, actually it makes a huge difference. So. Oh yeah. Well, one of the things about the mechanical heads is that impact, it has to open. Right. So it takes a lot of your energy that could be used during that pass through up to open that broadhead. Right. And then when that happens, it also creates like a bigger, I guess, impact on the animal. So it generates their um, adrenaline a lot quicker, if that makes sense. And that that's a fun piece to touch on for mechanical advantage, because I don't know how many times I've, I've had comments like this, but folks are so used to, like the the big kick, right? Right. You shoot a deer. What do they do? Yeehaw! Makes, they yeah. big kick, and it's <laughs> off to the races, right? <clears throat> when you have a truly efficient arrow, and you you make a clean hit, it's not uncommon for them to barely react. So example, yeah. last year, I shot my buck. <laughs> um, I had I was like 500 grain build, mid-20s yeah. FOC. Um, I was using a Maasai, I believe. Uh, I, I shot the, the buck, and he didn't really do anything. He just kind of trotted off, and he's standing there, and I'm like about to throw my bow out of the tree. I'm like, <laughs> I just missed yeah. him. I just missed him. And then all of a sudden he starts wobbling 
and he falls over. Yeah. And I'm like, huh, he just didn't know that he got hit. I was a double lung shot. I, I mean, I busted a rib on impact and busted a rib on the pass through coming out. And he just, I thought I missed him. And no, he just never knew he was hit. And that so often it's like you get a, a twitch and a little like, what was that? And then, you know, on kind of high alert, but just kind of assessing. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, compared to some of the big, wide, flatter cutting heads, it, I mean, the, the best thing that I can attribute it to is the felt impact, mm-hmm. right? One's like a slap and the other is, you know, just smooth. Right. And even if you have the exact same shot, right? Say you you make impact and that deer or that animal is going to be dead in 10 seconds, right? What's the difference in distance between a walking animal for 10 seconds and one at a full sprint? Three quarters of a mile or more. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like they can, they can cover some distance, right? I mean, even like elk. Well, I mean, how much ground can they cover? That buck I shot like three years ago now was a heart shot and I shot him. And I mean, he expired within like, I don't know, 60 yards from point of impact. And until you were real close to the buck, there wasn't really a blood trail. But again, didn't need one. I watched him die and he, was like, he expired in seconds. My dad made a similar shot like a week later using a lighter arrow build with a two-blade neck head. And his buck went oh, like 150 yards or something like that. But mm-hmm. man, his blood trail was, you could run on it, he would tell me. And I just, yeah. I'm like, dad, dead deer don't run. Right. No, my, my deer doesn't run because, you know, it, that right there just shows like him using a Mac had same, very similar shot. You know, his went how far compared to mine. Yeah. I mean, went twice the distance of not more. Yeah. yeah it's just one of those kind of ancillary benefits that people don't think about is uh, on top of the penetration gains that you can get from an efficient broadhead. Yeah. That uh, tends to be shorter trails. Yeah. Which is ultimately better because 150 yards in the woods is a lot longer than 150 yards. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. 